Welcome back to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. We are hearing more and more about free COVID-19 testing. The state health department has begun distributing at-home rapid antigen tests for community screening in certain zip codes. But there is a different federal program using a more sensitive PCR test that is underway in private and public schools across the state. Until vaccines can be offered to those under 12 years of age, there is lots of concern about being able to keep our keiki safe. This morning, we talked to Kara Gormount, the school testing director at the Department of Health, to learn more. Operation Expanded Testing is a federally funded program through Health and Human Services, and it has four goals to keep schools open for in-person learning, reduces uh, community spread, and ensuring access to COVID-19 testing for underserved populations, primarily, as you said, case rate who are not eligible for vaccines. And it also um, helps to allow parents to return to the workforce. The test that is available is a, an RT-PCR assay test, which is the most sensitive commercially available COVID-19 PCR test that's on the market. It was actually reported by the FDA's reference panel study from May 19, 2021 to have that level of sensitivity, and it is available in our schools. We provided the information for anybody who is interested in learning about it. Um, we've had a lot of education opportunities for the Department of Education, as well as the complex area superintendents and the principals. So we do office hours a couple of times a week with Colors Health, uh, who is the partner with Perkins Elmer. Perkins Elmer was actually the one who the Health and Human Services awarded the grant to to start this program. And Colors Health is the company that actually operationalizes the testing within the schools. So Colors Health does education with the principals in the school to help get them started and you know, stand up their program. Where are we at in the stand-up? Yeah, the Department of Education has actually already polled their entire school population and made a determination of all the schools that will be able to offer testing in the schools. They've provided us that entire list, and all of those schools have been enrolled or registered to begin testing, and many of them have already started testing, and many have started testing on a regular and routine basis. And the Department of Education is continuing to review those wins and where they've made some progress in the schools and continuing to expand the program. Do you have a handle on, you know, how many schools are further along in the process? So there are 67 schools that are already actively testing. Some are just still learning the logistics and have only offered it to a small group of people. And some people are really coming up with really creative ideas. There is one school who is going to be the central hub for all testing within their complex area. And all of their feeder schools will go to this high school to get their testing done. So they've already had a couple of launches and are continuing to grow that program. We have another smaller elementary school who's already done testing enough times that they feel comfortable actually doing a randomized sampling. So they are going to be letting their students know, you know, if they've been selected for testing. And if their parents consent, then they would be able to start testing. But it does require parental permission. Absolutely. Absolutely. And are there any particular challenges that you're aware of, just say, with the neighbor islands? There's always challenges with rolling out a program this size. It is very complex. The reality of it is the program does not come with staffing, and logistics are always a challenge from the neighboring islands. Right now, the labs are being sent back to California to be processed, and so the wait times for the results can be a little bit long. But the great news is that in October, the company Perkins Elmer is going to be entering into a partnership with 
the local lab, and so the turnaround times for the lab results will be a lot faster. What about for the private schools? How is that being rolled out? Uh, yeah, for the private schools, we have discussed it with their leadership through HAIS. We do have a few schools that are registered for private schools, and it's up to them you know, if they want to utilize this program. And is there anything available for students who are being homeschooled? I haven't actually been asked that question yet. Um, I, I don't know how that works if homeschool um, students have a governing body, you know, that they could potentially have um, doing the testing. Um, but this for this particular program, it really requires a site administrator. But, you know, we're willing to be flexible to try to figure those things out. Okay. And then what about charter schools? We have quite a few charter schools that are registered already. I believe the current number is 17. So, yeah, so it's available for charter schools. And if they want to use them, we're happy to help them discover the program. And is this particular program that you're administering, is that something that is being rolled out, you know, across the country? Yeah, it is actually a federal grant that is being funded, you know, through the Health and Human Services. And they have selected contractors across the nation who are rolling this out on the West Coast are contractor is Perkins Elmer. So they have the contract for the West Coast, Hawaii, and some of the other Pacific Islands. You've got this plan in place and the infrastructure. Is there some way that, you know, once the vaccines are rolled out, I mean, can we use, you know, kind of this template if, you know, there's a plan down the road to, let's say, start offering vaccines in the schools? The Department of Health is working really closely with the Department of Education to formalize a plan for vaccines. I think one of the important things to know about this test is it is a self-administered test that is reviewed and proctored by a non-medical person. So it is very simple. It is rather non-invasive. And I know people are very concerned often about being tested because they're worried about it being uncomfortable or being invasive. And that is not the case with this test. It's very simple to administer and so, you know, can be utilized without, you know, without any pain or discomfort. And people can be tested as frequently as the school and program director decide is important to them. So if there's groups of people that need to be tested, like for athletics, or if there's, you know, a particular class that wants to be tested, they are able to utilize that through the site and test as often as they want. It's really important, you know, the mitigation measures are the most important thing for preventing the spread of COVID. So vaccination, social distancing, mask wearing, and ventilation, those are the most important things. And by watching the the test, if there's test positivity rates that are increasing in the schools, we can pay attention to those rising numbers and then go out and start looking for places where maybe those mitigation efforts aren't as effective as they need to be. That's a critical component of this. So when you break it down into the schools and the actual classrooms, I mean, are these being being administered by the school nurse if they have one? Or did they train teachers? You know, I mean, how does that work? One method is using the Hawaii Kiki nurses. Okay. Um, But not everybody has a Hawaii Kiki nurse, so that is not always the way that the school is administering it. Some schools are being creative and actually asking parent volunteers to run the program. So that has been effective. But many of them are really being run by the principals and the vice principals and the administrative staff. That was the State Health Department's Kara Gorman, who is rolling out Operation Expanded Testing in public and private schools across the state. She expects that a contract with the local laboratory to begin processing those test results will be finalized by October 15th.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. You are back with the conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Can Democrats win back the white working class? Well, for today's The Longview segment, political analyst Neil Milner joins us to discuss the theories that attempt to explain that issue. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see your face in the studio today. Yes, I've got to like it again. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there, there's a lot at stake at the election. I mean, President Biden hasn't been in a year yet, but uh, lots of folks on the, looking at the horizon. Well, there's lots at stake for two reasons, because of the election itself, but because it also reflects broader issues about what's happening to America and why. So we're not just a bunch of folks here talking about whether the Democrats are going to win or not. Here's the issue. There has been a basic realignment here. In Back in the day, and, and the day goes back maybe to the 70s, maybe even more recently, the white working class was one of the centerpieces of Democratic support. The good union guy, when I grew up in Milwaukee, that, that was the solid support. The, the lunch pail guy, they were dependable voters. They were not necessarily racially liberal, but they voted for the Democrats allegedly because of bread and butter issues. There's been a total realignment. The, the heart and soul of the, of the white working class is now Republican. In the last election, and, and well, let me just add one thing. One of the important surrogates to measure the difference between working class, white working class and others is on the basis of education. So we're gonna talk about non-college educated versus educated. In the last election, the non-college educated folks voted for Trump two to one. Educated, college educated people voted for Biden three to two. That's a very big issue. So the Democrats have a problem on their hands about whether they can bring the white working class back in at least enough. And it's, you know, in, in close elections, it's very important. So there's been two theories around for a long time about what's why the white working class has disappeared from the Democratic Party. One is a fairly straightforward one, economic issues. Democrats don't know how to appeal to the white working class on, dem on economic issues. They spend too much time talking about cultural stuff, talking about race, and so on. Intuitively, that seems like a good explanation. It's a plausible one, but it turns out not to be very plausible. The other one, which is, to me, like the third rail of politics, because it's almost impossible to talk to and get people to listen, for which there is strong evidence, is that what really has brought this shift around, this big difference, is racial resentment on the part of white people, especially the white working class. And John Sides and um, a couple of other people have all the way through the electoral process over the last few years, Michael Tesler is the other one, has shown that this is a factor where there's an increase in white political identity and there's definitely an increase in the what's called racial resentment. There are certain kind of measures you use, but one of the key ones is that we're getting shafted and other people of color, African-Americans, but other people of color are getting more and it's changing America to our detriment. So a guy named Alan Abramowitz, a political scientist, decided on, to use this big survey that's done uh, on uh, post-election to look at 
which explanation seems to be the best? The, uh, the ultimate answer is it doesn't look good for the Democrats, but it's a, it's a little bit more complicated. So the, the, with the Democrats talking up the whole diversity issue, I mean, that's worked against them then. In well, here, here's the problem, right? If The problem is that that's become an increasingly important issue as part of the Democratic base, talking about cultural diversity, talking about, talking about racism, talking about uh, the... Me Too movement talking about things that recognize, for example, and this is the fight about uh, critical race theory, at least as translated by politicians, arguing, spending time arguing about the, the historical racism that it's been around forever and it's still there. Those issues are important to the, the Democratic base, uh, but they alienate the other side. So Abramowitz says, look, if you look at the data, it's really more complicated than that. Economic discontent is just a small issue. There isn't the, 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 the non-college educated people are more uh, discontented than college educated people. But the biggest difference between those two is on racial resentment. That, uh, and so he, he looks more closely at, so what, how do we put this all together? And what Abramovitz finds is this, you, that these white working class people didn't just turn to Trump, they'd started before that. It isn't just easily about feeling unhappy. They've become conservative. They vote, they identify with the Republican Party and they're conservative compared to the white, to the college educated people, which includes, of course, a lot of former Republicans, they're con more conservative on every kind of economic issue. So the first thing to say is it's not like you can just kind of talk to these people and switch them. They're, they're pretty locked in, excuse me, especially as they've been attached to the party. So there's a kind of ideology involved here. Um, but it turns out if you look more closely at this ideology, this conservative ideology, it's, it's very closely related to a sense of white racial resentment. That one of the most powerful explainers of this or, or cor correlates with this is that people who feel more like this also have a higher level of, of racial resentment, the white people having started. So, what Abramovich says is it's really hard for the Democrats because on the one hand, it doesn't seem like you can do very much to appeal to the white working class. You can move to the right on immigration. Uh, you can move to the right on gun control, but that's gonna alienate a lot of, a lot of your other support. Um, by the same token, you have to find votes somewhere. So that's. That issue of looking for votes here and there is an old issue, but you can really see the dilemma that the Democrats are in. Yeah, so the Democrats have their work cut out for them because there is that segment that's that's really not comfortable with, I guess, that label, liberal Democrats, right? I mean, they're conservative Democrats. Well, they're, well, conser not, they're not even they're Democrats anymore. <laughs> yeah. Of course, all of this... All of this doesn't really look at these, these weird changes that are going on, particularly within the Republican Party and particularly in regard to uh, voter suppression and, and more polarization. People are writing now about, um, you know, about basic crises in constitutions. This kind of assumes 
the data assumes, you know, just looking at a couple of issues. Okay. Well, Democrats have a lot of work to do. Yes, they do. <laughs> All right. But thanks so much, Neil. Sure. We have been talking to our political analyst and social scientist, Neil Milner. He's a contributing editor of our biweekly segment, The Long View. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. Open September 16th, honolulumuseum.org. We now look to the skies in search of a sleek endemic raptor that symbolizes royalty. In this week's Mono Minute, we learn about Hawaii's native bird of prey. And thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for bringing us its song. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces to the Hawaiian hawk, or the eo. Eo, or Hawaiian hawk, is the only native hawk found in Hawaii. Fossil evidence shows they once lived on all the main Hawaiian islands, but today are found only on the Big Island, where their population is considered stable, or perhaps even increasing. Because of this, they were removed from the Federal Endangered Species list just last year. Eo come in two colors. Some are mainly dark, while others are mostly cream-colored with brown backs. You can tell adults from juveniles by the color of their sear, or a fleshy patch above their bill. Adult EO have yellow-colored sears, while young juvenile birds have greenish-blue ones. Unlike many of their cousins from North America that feed mainly on rodents, EO have evolved more maneuverable wings that allow them to catch forest birds, as there were no mammals in Hawaii until after humans arrived. EO can be found in native and non-native forests all over the Big Island, from sea level up to over 10,000 feet in elevation. They build platform nests out of sticks in the branches of large trees, and once their young fledge from the nest, may still be fed by their parents for up to nine months, very long parental care period for a hawk. Eo have shrill, high-pitched calls that sound a bit like their name. Eo are a symbol of royalty, and Ku, the god of war and prosperity, could appear as an Eo. They're also considered an Almakua, or ancestral guardian spirit. Fortunately, Eo do not appear to be susceptible to mosquito-transmitted avian malaria, like many other Hawaiian birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart, UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Allegations of corruption in Honolulu's Planning and Permitting Department. That is the subject of today's Reality Check. Joining us today is Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor, Chad Blair. Hi, Chad. 
Good morning, Catherine. So we're talking about an, uh, an article, that a story that Christina Jedra wrote about DPP. Right. It's the lead story on our site today, getting a lot of uh, clicks, as, you, <laughs> as they say, at the Internet business. And, of course, we know earlier this year there was that uh, charging of five current or former uh, DPP employees with bribery. And, in fact, one of them, I believe, has already pleaded guilty and is awaiting sentencing. There was also a, uh, a local architect involved. And, of course, you know, there's always been, as you know, having covered this city for a very long time, as well as the state, there's always been complaints about the Department of Planning and Permitting, including the fact that it's often just so slow trying to process all those building applications. But there have been more serious concerns uh, raised as well. And the, these bribery indictments, which come from the federal side, federal charges, make one think if there's something more. So what Christina did, as reporters do, she filed a public records request looking at uh, documents uh, in the recent past, uh, internal documents with the Honolulu Ethics Commission and with DPP and what they show as they really seem to foreshadow what was happening, what happened with those indictments earlier this year, a department where often questionable behavior occurred on the behalf of the staff, lacks oversight as well, raising serious questions about abuse of power. And she found out that the Honolulu Ethics Commission received a number of tips and concerns about, about corruption and bribery in the department. Right. At least a dozen camp complaints. And this would have been in the 2007-2012 period. Uh, there were at least five investigations. Uh, in addition to allegations of bribery, extortion uh, was alleged. Uh, the giving of gifts, that came up as well. Uh, some very serious concerns. We can tell you that the Ethics Commission did not ultimately... Uh, find anything they were not be able to they were not able to prove anything but these allegations still are out there and Christina did talk to people that worked at the department back in the day who said you know there still is this as it was described a pay-to-play culture right giving somebody money or, or some other gift in exchange for getting your permit processed rapidly and you know we should note though that the ethics commission had some serious challenges with staffing and I remember Chuck Tato at the time, you know, raised that concern that it really, you know, hampered what they could do. That's right. And this would have been under Chuck Tato. Of course, he's, he's no longer running the Ethics Commission, but Christina did talk to the current uh, director as well. And speaking of staffing problems, not only has the commission had problems, but DPP itself, the, the, the department that issues these, these permits, I think right now the vacancy rate is something like 50%. So uh, there's a real problem in, in manpower that also would seem to concentrate the ability to grant permits uh, among certain employees. Uh, by the way, Christina did try and reach the previous four directors of DPP. No luck getting any of them to comment on the record. But she did talk to Dean Uchida, who is the current director, uh, an appointee under uh, Mayor Rick Blangiardi, who, of course, just came in this year. Right. And, you know, they what they vow a crackdown and, and just a tighter <laughs> ship. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Dean Uchida saying, look, this kind of behavior, uh, it just is not going to be tolerated uh, in order to help them. There is an investigator and a special master uh, that have been assigned to to assess department weaknesses, according to Uchida. Uh, re reform efforts are already underway, although it's interesting. Christina did ask Dean, uh, you know, whether 
could, could she poss- could he possibly go on record saying corruption had been rooted out completely at the department? And he stopped short of saying that. But um, he does seem to take very seriously the mandate, those headlines. And by the way, I guess it's two people, an update, two people have pled guilty in waiting sentences. But Uchida did promise to, to try and right the ship that is known as DPP. Right. I mean, uh, we'll, and we'll see how the other indictments uh, play out there at federal court. But certainly uh, lots of anecdotal uh, stories. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting just to see what the record shows there. Um, but thanks so much, Chad. Yes, and thanks to Christina Jedra. It's our lead story today. All right. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with t- today's Reality Check. To read uh, Jedra's story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR local reporting comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to create a movement through the change framework to help Hawaii communities solve challenges and thrive. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org slash change to join the movement. We are open to trying new things here on The Conversation to make for an interesting hour. And earlier this summer, we sent HPR's Russell Subiono and Savannah harriman Pote out to Coconut Island on the windward side of Oahu for a story about freezing coral for the future. It's cutting-edge stuff. Enjoy. We've got a coral story for you. But it's not this kind of story. The Great Barrier Reef is the world's largest. It's brightly colored, swarming with fish and wildlife. But recently, marine heat waves have been killing off large sections of the reef. No offense intended to NPR's Merritt Kennedy. Huge fans of your work here. And needless to say, normally when coral makes headlines, it's not good news. But this is a fun story, we promise. A really fun story. Because scientist Mary Hatterdern is the antidote to your coral bad news burnout. Hi, nice Nice to meet you. you. This is Russell. Hi, Russell. I'm Mary. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Sure, sure, (laughs) sure. Mary is a marine biologist at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute and the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. She runs a Hagadern lab on Moku Oloe, or Coconut Island, where they are working to save coral species using, get this, cryopreservation, which is what I think they did to Walt Disney's body. Yeah, that's probably a myth, but cryopreservation is very real. It's been a part of human fertility treatments for the past 50 years or so. Clinets are able to freeze human sperm or eggs. Same principle, but applied to coral. Mary offered to show us around her lab. So we, you know, started thinking about cryopreservation about 17 years ago when we first came to Coconut Island. And the goal was really to protect the genetic diversity and species diversity of coral reefs. And we thought, well, maybe cryopreservation could help with this. So we started freezing sperm, just like you can freeze human sperm. Human sperm was first frozen in 1960s. But we had to develop the science ourselves and our technology. There were no, like, go to the store and buy this kind of freezer to do coral sperm. We had to create them ourselves, and we now 3D print them all. So, which is good because before we made them out of flip flops, believe it. <laughs> flip flops. Oh my God, that was the, that was model number one. So today now, with our colleagues around the world, we have frozen 48 species. We have some from the Great Barrier Reef, the Caribbean, Hawaii, French Polynesia, and the Gulf of Mexico. And there are about a thousand or so species of corals in the world. So we have a ways to go <laughs> in terms of sperm cryopreservation. And that was just step one. We can also now freeze coral larvae. So this is like freezing human embryos. 
and but they're much bigger than human embryos. Think Mercury, the planet Mercury next to Jupiter. Okay, that's how different they are. It's like a big puzzle that Mary and her team are trying to put together. In order to effectively preserve a reef, you need to preserve all of its parts. Another puzzle piece is the coral's symbionts. They're the internal algae that give coral its color. And they absorb their algae early on in their life stage, and it feeds them. When coral bleach, or the water becomes too warm, they give up their symbionts, and they have this sort of bone white color. They're not dead. It's like, you know, the invisible man when you can look through his skin and see his organs. That's the same kind of thing. But if they don't get their symbionts back within about 10 weeks, they will die. The symbionts feed them. So it's like saying, okay, you cannot eat for the next 12 weeks. You know, how, how are you going to survive? You know, it's, you're going to lose fat. You're going to lose nutrients. There's damage that happens to the coral when they go through this stressful event, even if they live. So if you don't have these guys, and doesn't matter how many cryopreserved larvae you have, you're not going to be able to grow them out. These are key. Jessica Baumeister is a postdoctorate scholar in the Hagedern lab. She's been running point on the protocol to preserve the symbionts. So when I was redesigning that protocol to be able to cryopreserve the symbionts again, I think I spent an entire year where week after week I preserved them checked them the next day and they were dead. So it's been a very mentally hard year um, to kind of keep trying again and just changing a little bit to kind of see how things were going and, and getting the data that I needed to know what to change. Um, and when it worked, it really worked from one day to the next. The next full moon we have all the mushroom corals will be reproducing and they all those larvae are larvae that will be looking for symbionts in their first days. And so we're going to actually get them to fertilize in our tanks and make sure they have absolutely no exposure to symbionts so that we can give them the ones that we want to give them. And we're going to give them some of our cryopreserved symbionts. And if they take them up and keep them, we know that our protocol is perfect, basically. You might have seen the bottle of champagne on the table, on the kitchen table. It's uh, the reward if it works. And a lot has been working for the Hagedern lab lately. There were so many areas, so many steps along the way where we could have failed, and we didn't, and it was just completely surprising. But I think in this whole journey of doing the cryopreservation, the science has just proved right every single time. If we get the right combination of, you know, variables and we put them together, it just works, and it's, it's magic. Of all the things Mary and her team shared with us, she seemed most excited about these pressure transducers. They look kind of like aluminum salt shakers. But very heavy. Yeah, very heavy aluminum salt shakers. Except instead of salt, they're full of antifreeze. By pressurizing the chamber, no ice can form. We're hoping that in the next couple months, we're going to be able to thaw things about this size. That's a coral fragment roughly the size of an almond for folks listening at home. So this will allow us to go anywhere at any time, collect coral, make tiny little fragments of them and freeze them. And it'll save the coral, it'll save its symbionts, and there's a, there's a microbial community that lives on the coral. So the whole thing will be there. And this, is, to me, is perhaps the strongest restoration um, uh, process that we have coming out of the lab right now. It will, it will transform. We'll be able in the next five years to 
rapidly train people and go around the world and really just put, put them away. We can absolutely put reefs away for the future if need be. Speaking of, Jessica, along with intern Mariko Quinn, offered to show us the piece de resistance of the lab, the coral bank. Picture a giant propane tank filled with liquid nitrogen. And here it is. So we have a gigantic lid, which is not made to be fully sealed because liquid nitrogen is always going to expand a little bit. Um, if we seal it, we're creating a bomb, which we don't want to do. <laughs> um, but in here, we've got six, six big towers where we can stock a lot of samples in. And once you put it back down, Once you put it back down, everything is stored at minus 185 degrees Celsius. So we can keep it like that for years, decades, um, for as long as we need it. And that bank can hold hundreds of samples at a time. And at some point, it will get shipped off to a facility in Colorado that's more secure. So no one can ever, ever steal them. <laughs> and then when they're ready to use those samples, we just warm them up using lasers. <laughs> You know, Russell, I got to say, I think part of the reason why I loved reporting on this story, I feel like it's so rare to talk to people in this field who have such optimism for the future. I agree. But, you know, while we were there, there was this question that just kept rolling around in my head. What is the point of all of this, all of this incredible effort, if we're not first addressing the factors that are damaging the reef in the first place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... <laughs> I was born in 98, which, according to NOAA, was the year of the first global mass bleaching event. The narrative of coral sustaining damage has been going on for my entire life. It's really hard to think about things getting better. And uh, I was born a lot earlier than that, <laughs> but we don't need to dwell there. I, in my lifetime, I've spent time on the coral growing up. I was either snorkeling or I was diving and I was helping to provide for my family. And so I definitely have a vested interest in making sure or encouraging any effort to preserve the corals that I know help sustain many of the local people here. So I would love to see corals preserved, not just for the future, but for future generations as well. You know, I mean, obviously you wouldn't go to the, to the, all this effort to freeze this stuff and put it out into reefs that are dying. A lot of the damage for the Great Barrier Reef and certainly for Florida happened long before climate change. It, it was all local causes, sedimentation, pollution, nutrients, all that, those sorts of things. And it happens here. We still do not address that. Um, yeah, I certainly do get depressed. And there, there are days when I was just like, why am I doing this? Um, but no, I think you know, I think technology can help. I mean, the great thing about this is we can stick them away in a tank and, you know, maybe a thousand years from now, people will, will say, yeah, that, that was a good idea back then. Let's, let's bring those out. I don't know. Every person does th their thing, right? And this is mine. And um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm happy that the science is working for this. I'm happy there are options for the future. I think of my nieces and nephews. I don't have any children. I want them to be able to see a coral reef at some point. And that's what drives me more than anything else. It's the most magical place on earth, a coral reef. And every person on earth should be able to see one if they want. Bye, Turtle Island.
That was HPR Savannah Harriman Pote and Russell Subiono. They were talking to researcher Mary Hagedorn. Also, thanks to Jessica uh, Bowmeister and intern Mariko Quinn. To find out more about the Hagedorn Lab, find links at our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap for today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Governor David Ige. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.